0: For many things in life, it takes time and effort before you can see meaningful improvement. But luckily for us, eating better is easy with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every meal from Factor is fresh, never frozen, and is chef-crafted and ready to go in just two minutes. There are over 35 different options to choose from every week, and it doesn't just stop at lunch or dinner, they also have a wide variety of easy options for the entire day like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Truly every meal I've had from Factor has been delicious, but most importantly for me, it's beyond easy with no cooking or prep and especially no cleanup. Plus Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved. So I'm saving money and eating healthier even on the days when I don't feel like cooking. If you'd like to get started today and get after your goals, head to factormeals.com slash lightspeed50 and use code lightspeed50 to get 50% off. That's code LIGHTSPEED50 at factormeals.com slash LIGHTSPEED50 to get 50% off. Who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side? Even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time. So there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters and then new chapters are added weekly. So you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I am your host, Jim Freund. Lightspeed Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams. Check out our subscription options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. Once again, this month's issue of Lightspeed Magazine is sponsored by Edge, science fiction and fantasy publishing. Their website is at edgewebsite.com. Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast, produces the stories for this podcast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrator Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Check out their website at skyboatmedia.com. Music and sound logos are composed and performed by Jack and Post-production for Lightspeed is in association with yours truly. Our audiobook story collection, Lightspeed Year One, is available from audible.com and includes all of the podcasts from Lightspeed's first year, which was nominated for the Hugo Award. The collection is also available on downpour.com, so if you have the time, check that out as well. Just search for Lightspeed, and you're on your way. Today's story is So Sharp That Blood Must Flow, by Sonny Moraine and read by Susan Hanfield. Sunny Moraine is a humanoid creature of average height, luminosity, and inertial mass. They are also a doctoral candidate in sociology and a writer-like object whose work has appeared or is forthcoming in Strange Horizons, Apex Magazine, Clark's World, and Shimmer, among other places, all of which has provided lovely reasons to avoid a dissertation. Their first novel, Line in Orbit, co-written with Lisa Soam, is available from Samhain Publishing. Their solo-authored novel, Crow Flight, is coming this fall from Mask Books. They can be found at sunnymoraine.com. And now, buckle up. We're going to Lightspeed.
2: So sharp that blood... Must Flow by Sunny Moraine In the end, the water goes black with the witch's blood. Before this happens, the little mermaid understands that a deal is a deal, a bargain, a bargain, and there can't be reneging. But this isn't reneging, she tells herself, as she sinks down, 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 into water so black that in truth, it would be difficult to discern witch's blood within it, even had a hundred witches been slaughtered in its depths. She is not seafoam. That was the first lie. She is also not alive. That was truth. Being not alive, she has no need to breathe. This is terribly convenient, given what she needs to do next. Surrounded by a hundred crystal lanterns, a prince dances with his princess. This is iconic, archetypal. Many of the people in the assembly sense this on some level and take pleasure in its even perfection. This is the ending of all the stories they have ever been told as children, all the stories they have ever told their children, all the stories their children will tell. The prince marries his princess, and they dance and are blissfully happy. She watches them from the parapet, her eyes burning, and her feet cut to ribbons by invisible knives. This was not her ending, and she sees no reason why she should take it gracefully. The water is dark and deep below her, and she arcs down into it, her gown fluttering around her. She takes particular care to hit the water at such an angle as to break her neck, and so she sinks before she can dissolve on the little waves. She dies with purpose. This is a truth she makes. If she were sea foam, she thinks, and perhaps this is after, and perhaps it is before, or perhaps it is both things simultaneously, she could become the rain, and patter down on his window panes, trickle down the glass, and watch him inside in his bright warmth. Or in a storm, she could come to him riding, or walking, or anywhere unsheltered, and cut down through the air to strike his cheeks. She could fling herself at him, and run down his body like sweat, down his face like tears. She aches with it. It's worse than the knives ever were. The witch never told her that the knives on which she danced would be the lesser pain. Did she know? She must have. Witches know all the secrets of love. It's what gives them the power to bargain with all its points and angles and gemstone facets. If she were sea foam, but she is not. Before, she wants it. After, She wonders at what possessed her. But even in the cold heart of the water, she still knows. It takes her a long time to sink, a long time for the deep currents to carry her. Sometimes she thinks she can still hear the music. It works its way into her ears like droppers of poison. And though the cold water denies her rictus, she feels her teeth clench and grind. As tiny fish nibble on her legs and toes, she still has them, even now, and hates them more every passing second, though the knives have at least allowed her a reprieve. She wonders about death, turns the fact of it over in her mind. She is dead, she's sure of that much, but either the witch lied and that is why she is not foam on the waves. Or something else has happened. Her spirit is not free, and has not passed away. Perhaps this is what rage does. She has never felt rage like this, all-consuming, like the coals of deep-sea volcanoes in the core of her breast. She wanted. She reached for. She did everything she should have done. And him... Him. But if she's still here, there are other options. She whispers to the current. It still knows her, and carries her corpse to where she wants to be. It sets her gently down at the mouth of the Sea Witch's Cavern, and there she comes to rest against the rocks, the waving fronds of Posidonia caressing her limbs. She waits. Why have you come back to me? All at once, without any stirring of the water at her coming, the witch is looming over her. The rags of her 12 tails like surf-beaten kelp, the thin strands of her hair like ancient seaweed. Her eyes are like the coals that burn in the mermaid's heart. You should be foam on the waves, daughter. By the witch's magic, the mermaid knows she'll be heard, the voice of that coal as it burns higher and more violent. I'm no daughter of yours. No, at that not. So then. The witch reaches down and lifts the mermaid under the arms, clasps her cold body close to hers, which is hot for a host of dark and unnatural reasons. This tale has ended badly for you you meant it too i meant to exact a price i would in any case you must know how these things work i don't make the rules the witch glides backward through the water back into her cavern carrying the little mermaid with her it is an embrace close and dangerous not intending comfort, not intending any good. But the mermaid has suffered and is dead, and is now not afraid of anything. She has spent some of her time of sinking in wondering what might happen to her now, whether the witch might cut her into pieces and use her disparate parts for her magics, whether she might be skinned and used as a bag or a drifting blanket, whether her muscles and fat might be peeled away, and eaten raw, her blood spilling down the witch's chin and floating like red gauze in the little currents. But now, she doesn't think those things will happen. Pressed to the witch's bare, sagging breasts, she can sense the direction of movements. She can see way ahead with her blank, dead eyes. The witch lays her down in a bed of kelp. The bones of whales hang from the cavern ceiling and make a soft clunk sound when the shifting water brings them into contact with each other. The water itself smells of blood, crushed plants, decay, dark things. The blood might draw sharks, but the rest keeps them away, keeps everything away but the desperate and the dead. The witch floats above her arms loose at her sides. I want to make a deal. The witch cocks her head on one side. This close, the mermaid sees that tiny, pale shrimp a-crawling through the strands of her hair, picking over her scalp. Another? The way this one has ended? Be serious with me, girl. What could you offer me, and what would you want? You know. The witch is silent for a time. Her fingers wander over the mermaid's body. Perhaps she is learning humanity. Perhaps she has never touched a human woman. It would be difficult, she says at last. It would require a much heavy magic, dense and drawn from the core of the world, through the fire towers in the deepest of deeps. And that still leaves open the question of what you could give me in trade. What would be worth so much effort and such a cost to me? The little mermaid has had an answer for this ready since her body hit the water. She wishes she could smile. There is one thing. And against all possibility, the corners of her mouth twitch. Life and strength flow back into the mermaid, both together. A great rush, like a wave crashing on the shore of her heart. Her body wrenches itself upward, a great heave, her chest twisting in on itself, with the lungs she no longer has. Her legs are bound and blended, Her feet splay and stretch into fins. She opens her mouth wide in a scream, with no voice to make it heard. The witch watches her in silence. She was pale before. Now, her skin is almost translucent. She is exactly the color of the shrimp that infest her hair. She looks as if she's trying to smile, but can't. As if she's taken a little of the mermaid's death into herself, Because, of course, she has. Death always has to go somewhere. But that leaves the rest of it, the death the mermaid has promised. The witch places the silver blade into the mermaid's hand. Two seconds later, its point is buried in the witch's breast. This was not part of the deal, not the promised death in trade. But the witch doesn't look particularly shocked as she dies. The little mermaid sits in the center of the black gauze witch's blood. It flows into her gills. She opens her mouth and tastes its old metal and rotten wood. What she promised the witch, what she's offered in exchange, she's done offering, done exchanging. This is all for her. She can hear the music of the prince's ship as she nears the surface. It's music to dance to, and for a moment, she stops, just beneath the surface, head cocked, listening. She danced once, danced on the blades of knives and never bled, never screamed, and it had not just been that she had no voice. Love silenced her, terrible love, and she only had eyes for him as he laid his hands on her and spun her across the floor. Alone, she had danced for his delight, her eyes beseeching him. She had believed he saw and answered her in the same kind. She had believed that he had entered the cloak of silence that covered her, that when his lips touched hers, he had shared in it all. Now she listens, cold, the water around her she breaks the surface the knife is very heavy in her hand the ship is strung with fairy lights bathed in starlight on the deck she can see bodies turning turning she can't see the prince or his precious princess but she can feel him there whether or not he meant to he did share himself with her If, as she now knows, not his better part, not the part he's given now, she stabs the blade into the wood of the ship's side and begins to climb. She knows they won't see her, not at first. They had never seen her, not even him, and now will be no different. Though she's a thing of legend, a fairy tale, as much as the prince and his princess, She's not a thing of this fairy tale, has no place here, and so will be unseen. She is supposed to be dead. To them, she is. She can make use of this. She pulls herself onto the deck, behind a table laden with food. Her gills should make this difficult, but some part of her remembers, some part of her unable to shed that form, just as she can't yet shed all of her death so the air she pulls into her is harsh, sharp, a little like the knives that used to torment her. Her tail is strong, and she uses it to push herself across the deck, behind the guests, behind the men in their fine suits of clothing, and the ladies in their rich gowns, behind the musicians with their strings and pipes and delicate drums. And there, in the center of the gathering, him, and her the mermaid closes her hand on the edge of the shear's blade and bleeds because what's a little more blood the prince and his princess turn around each other spinning and laughing voices high and clear over the music the mermaid in spite of herself briefly loses herself in watching them they are so lovely in light that dances as they do fire and stars, and for an instant, a traitorous instant, she wants this again. Wishes, dreams, because it might, it might have been worth the pain. She lets out a sharp hiss. All at once, the prince and his princess stop, standing in the center of the circle, gaze to gaze, hand in hand, breathless and flushed, and so clearly happy. This is the last scene of the fairy tale, the point at which it ends. The book closes, the light goes out, and all the good little children snuggle into their covers and drift asleep on waves of sea foam. The little mermaid slaps her tail against the deck and leaps. There's silence. She can hear it. The world itself gone frozen and still, and all eyes on her. Her hands hit the prince squarely in the chest, one hand over his heart, and the shock on his face gives her pleasure as keen as any blade that has ever touched her. From somewhere in the crowd, a scream. The prince himself is opening his mouth to do the same. The little mermaid opens her own in mimicry of him, and before he can utter a sound, she plunges her head down and sinks her teeth into his throat. He convulses under her. His choked-off scream comes out as a gurgle as her teeth dig in and in. Hot blood floods her mouth, flesh giving under the force of her bite, and the prince twists, trying to get away. And this is all the help she needs, as she whips her head to the side and tears out his throat, meat, and and voice sweet together on her tongue. She swallows. The prince lies there, twitching, drowning in his own blood, voiceless. Now the screams, a chorus of them, women and men alike, and the sweetest scream of his princess. But the little mermaid barely hears any of this, over the sound of her own laughter, hard and high, and like all the songs she used to sing to him, Unheard beneath the waves, she eats his scream, the blood running down her chin. And as her death flows into the gaping hole in him, his life burns hot in her belly. Why? He's mouthing, silent and already half dead. Why? She lowers herself against him and kisses him once, painting his mouth with his own blood, smiling against him, and now understanding that this is a kind of joy he would have never given her willingly. Now there are running feet on the deck, the pounding of fleeing and panicked people, the shouts of the few guards he's brought with him on what should have been a voyage to celebrate life and love. Over the din of all these things, she opens her mouth and speaks to him for the first time. Fair's fair, she crows, Fair is so very fair, and I'll spare you, the knives you dance on, my love, my love. She's singing as she begins to cut off his legs with the blade. It is very sharp, the witch gave it magic. He can't scream, of course, as his blood pools on the deck and drips through the slats. But she can feel his cries echoing in her own throat and she turns them into music. To this music, she thinks, she'd dance on knives. She'd dance, and she'd laugh, her teeth glistening like rubies in her mouth. No one touches her. No one comes near her. She takes the prince's legs in each hand, and leaves the knife buried in his heart. She moves to the railing, and before she leaps into the dock, She glances back at his princess, still standing at the edge of the crowd, pale as the witch, with tears streaming down her face. Her story has not ended well. The Little Mermaid regards her dispassionately, though really, she bears her no malice. The princess has, of course, been allowed to live. In another story, the Little Mermaid knows that it might have been herself. It might have been anyone. She gives her chin an imperious tilt. The one thing she would never have cared about being was royalty. Make your own deals, she says, and lets herself fall. She slices into the water, a limb in each hand. She lifts the legs to her mouth and kisses each on the sole of the foot, where the knives had always hurt her most. And she lets them go. As she plunges down into the fathoms below, she doesn't look back. The prince's legs float to the surface and bubble, dissolve into sea foam on the waves, and are soon lost and nothing at all. She allows herself a second to float, light above her, and deepest darkness below. This is a crossroads, a turning away forever but there isn't any going back. That was the deal she made. And she can make her own deals and her own truths, make them solid and real, as her flesh will now always be.
1: Welcome back. You've been listening to So Sharp That Blood Must Flow. By Sonny Moraine, and read by Susan Hanfield. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, and if you find the time, please go to our website at lightspeedmagazine.com and leave a comment. Just click on Fiction, find this story, and leave the comment there. Or if you'd like to spread the word, go to iTunes, find the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast, and leave a review or rating there. And if you haven't already subscribed to Lightspeed Magazine, please check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. We also hope that you'll check out Lightspeed Year One, the collection of audio stories from this podcast's first Hugo-nominated year. Look for it at audible.com. This podcast is copyright 2014 by Lightspeed Magazine. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. Cheers from all of us at... Lightspeed.
3: Heart Stephen King. Heart Chuck Palahniuk. Infected blends science fiction and horror into a pulpy masterpiece of action, terror, and suspense. James Rollins, New York Times bestselling author of The Judas Strain and Black Order. The Infected Trilogy is an unabridged three-season audio fiction series from number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Powerfully written, an unforgettable central character. Dallas Morning News. Infected is one hell of an exhilarating ride. Joe R. Lansdale, world horror convention Great. Grandmaster and author of Bubba Hotep and Hap and Leonard. All 88 episodes, 53 hours of horror, are free and available now wherever you listen to podcasts. Sigler is the Richard Matheson of the 21st century. Infected is a flawless thinking person's thriller. Jonathan Mayberry, Bram Stoker award-winning author of B-Wars and the Joe Ledger series.